Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. During the weeks and months that we are struggling to deal with the challenges created by the COVID-19 pandemic, we turn to Scripture for comfort, healing, and hope. Especially during this Easter season, we turn to the Gospels for stories in the life of Jesus that we can apply to our own lives in times of hardship and loss. It's my hope that wherever you are in your life's journey and your faith journey, that you may find a little something to take away with you. We're going to begin today by hearing the story of when Jesus was called to deal with the death of his friend Lazarus. The story comes from the 11th chapter of St. John. Jesus has been summoned to a town called Bethany by his friends Martha and Mary because their brother Lazarus is gravely ill. Jesus delays his departure, and when he finally arrives, he's met by Martha on the road into town. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection and the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her at her house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have they laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There are a lot of emotions swirling around in this story, and that's to be expected. There's always a lot of emotion present when somebody dies. The most prevalent emotion at the scene of Lazarus' death, beyond the expected sadness, is anger. Now maybe you've missed that when you've read that story in the past. To appreciate the anger, you have to do a dramatic reading of the story. You have to hear the voices of Martha and Mary. When Jesus arrives too late to help their brother Lazarus, 
because he seemed to have taken his good time getting there. He gets it from both barrels. Martha confronts him on the road and says angrily, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. After he deals with her, he's confronted by Mary, who says exactly the same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Can you hear the angry blaming in their voices? We're apt to overlook their anger, to sanitize their reactions, out of our reverence toward Jesus. But how could they not have been angry? Jesus was their friend, not some abstract, far-off God. And their friend had let them down in their time of need. It's not because they doubted Jesus' power. To the contrary, they knew he had the power to save. And he'd neglected to use it. Where were you when you needed him, when we needed you? You let us down. Jesus' reaction is just as surprising as Martha and Mary's anger. When Jesus sees that Martha and Mary and the friends who were there to support them are weeping, we are told that Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And then something truly amazing occurs. Jesus breaks down and cries. Jesus wept. It appears that Jesus is not crying for Lazarus. He knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. His compassion is directed toward the grief of Martha and Mary and the mourners. He didn't react defensively toward their anger because he knew it was born of their grief. Many years ago, Bob, a member of my congregation, was in the final stages of dying from liver cancer. Bob and his wife Marilyn were active in the church, Bob serving on the church council and Marilyn as a member of the quilting circle and the funeral luncheon team. We developed a close relationship over the years, and when Bob was diagnosed with cancer, I started visiting him regularly. I really enjoyed hearing his stories of his service in Europe during World War II. At the time Bob neared death, I was scheduled to lead a tour group to the Holy Land. I visited Bob for what I suspected to be the final time. We prayed together and said our goodbyes. When our group visited the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, in accordance with the custom, I wrote a prayer for Bob on a small slip of paper and stuck it between the stones in the wall. The next day, as we visited the Garden of Gethsemane, I felt my phone vibrating in my pocket. It was the funeral director at home. He didn't know I was away, calling to make Bob's funeral arrangements. He died hours earlier. My associate would have to make the arrangements and do the funeral. Our group, many of whom knew Bob, included him in our prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane as part of our communion service there. It was the most meaningful and sacred moment in the trip for me. When I returned home a week later, I gave Marilyn a call. Her daughter answered the phone. When I asked to talk with her mother, I sensed some hesitation in her voice. Mom, I heard her yell in the background, it's Pastor Melvin. And after some shuffling noise and unintelligible whispering in the background, I heard someone breathing into the phone. Hello, Marilyn said in an icy voice. I told her how sad I was at her loss and how I would miss her husband. Bob asked for you just before he died, she said, without emotion. I asked to come visit, 
but she declined, saying that they were just fine and had a lot to attend to. That was the end of our conversation. She hung up. She didn't say, where were you? But that was what she meant. It is one thing to read the story of Martha and Mary's anger with Jesus. Quite another to experience a grieving wife of someone you know hang up on you after delivering a good dose of guilt to you. I got over it, of course, pretty much. I knew that there was nothing I could have done. I wasn't even on vacation, I rationalized. I was working. But still. But my guilt's not the point. What is important was Marilyn's anger. It was not really about me or what I did or didn't do. She knew that I couldn't fly home. Her anger was a part of her grieving for Bob, the love of her life. She needed her anger to get her through the pain of the moment. I was a convenient target for that anger. Marilyn went to another church for over a year after that. But eventually she came back and rejoined her quilting group, although her relationship with me was never quite the same. I want to focus today on anger, which comes as a part of our grieving process. Back in 1969, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book titled On Death and Dying, What the Dying Have to Teach Doctors, Nurses, Clergy, and Their Own Families. It was revolutionary not only for the American medical community, but for our entire death-denying culture. The culture that I grew up in, where we could not even speak the word cancer, but referred to it as the big C, if at all. On death and dying was a game changer. The hospice movement, now considered a mainstay in compassionate medical care, grew out of Kubler-Ross's work. The most valuable insight to come out of her work with the dying was her identification of the five stages of grief. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. These are the primary emotions and behaviors that people who are dying and those around them experience in dealing with death. These stages don't necessarily occur in neat order, and we may call them something else. Some people may not experience them at all. But for the most part, they help us understand a process that needs to take place, that needs to be honored, if we are to come out on the other side of loss and grief to any kind of a healthy place. Bottom line, we need to grieve our losses. We have a God-given right to grieve our losses. Someone who is in the process of dying needs to grieve the life and the people they love who they're losing. Those who are left behind have the right to own their grief, no matter how uncomfortable it may seem to those around them. You and I will experience many losses. You and I will need to do a lot of grieving in our lives. We shut down our grief at our peril. When we deny others their grief or move them through it too fast, we do them a disservice. We can harm them. Jesus knew that. 
He didn't try to make any lame excuses. He didn't try to tell Martha and Mary that they should suck it up and dry their tears. He didn't tell them not to be angry. He joined them in their crying. He stayed right there with them in their grief. He was able to withstand their anger because it was what they needed. If they could not be angry, they couldn't have withstood the pain. As the result of the global pandemic, all of us are experiencing losses in our lives. Some of us have experienced the loss of jobs and our financial security. We have all lost, to some degree or another, our freedom of movement. We can't even go out to a restaurant for a simple dinner. Some of us have lost loved ones to the disease. As I'm writing these words, it's Friday night. Oh, how I would love to go out to a good old Wisconsin fish fry tonight. Not going to happen. I feel a sense of loss. Not the kind that Marilyn felt, but loss nonetheless. It's my loss. It does not surprise me in our current context that we are seeing people expressing all of the stages of grief. Some people are in denial. Well, that coronavirus is a big hoax, or it's not as bad as some people are making it out to be. Or we think we can bargain our way out of it. You know, if they'll just let us get back to normal, we'll be responsible and make sure the virus doesn't rebound. Some people are already sinking into depression, not getting dressed in the morning, have lost any sense of joy doing the things they used to love. And I see evidence of many people moving toward acceptance, deciding to get on with life no matter what it serves up. They may not be happy with it, but that's the way life's going to be, and they'll deal with it. But to my point today, I'm also seeing a lot of anger boiling up. Some of us have directed our anger over our loss toward the government and our leaders who have closed down our economy and restricted our freedom of movement and freedom to gather with other people. We Americans don't much like that kind of control. Much angry rhetoric was on display as people planned to gather in our state capital to protest the shutdown, even though they were defying the authorities' attempts to stop them. They're killing more people by closing down our economy than the virus kills, one agitated protester yelled on the news. On the other hand, equally as many people are angry at the protesters for endangering their freedom. You know, they can contract the coronavirus and die if they want, read one angry post on Facebook. But damn it, how dare they risk the lives of those first responders and their families who are only trying to protect them. In this case, the protesters have become the target of these people's anger. People expressing anger in the political arena is endemic to our society. It's part of the way that democracy works. Frustrated people have an outlet for their anger, a release valve for their righteous indignation, and hopefully and usually nobody gets hurt. As I said, we all have a right to our anger, and we have something to be angry about. Some anger, however, is hitting much closer to home. It may be hitting in your home. Raise your hand if you've ever lost it, just a little bit. I can't see you, but I'm assuming your hand is up. 
Maybe one of your kids just won't sit down and do their virtual homework, and you let a few angry words fly. Maybe you and your spouse are a little too cramped with both of you working at home from the kitchen table, and you shushed him while you were on a, a phone call, and he glared back at you with equal anger. And then there are those inconsiderate jerks hoarding toilet paper and making it hard on everybody else. A lot of reason to be angry. This week, I tried to call a local butcher shop to place an order for some meat. They only accept orders over the phone for pickup to protect their employees. You can guess how that went. Since it's been announced that some major meat processors are shutting down to deal with positive testing employees, the hoarding has shifted from toilet paper to pork and beef. When I got through to the answering machine after a few tries, a pleasant-sounding voice asked for my patience since they were experiencing an unusually high volume of calls, and this was all new to them, too. How often have you heard that lately? An unusually high volume of calls. Okay, at least I got through. Then the disembodied voice said, please don't leave an order by voicemail. Okay, I'll just wait my turn and on hold. Then click. I was disconnected. I couldn't leave a message if I'd wanted to. I called again. Busy. I trawled again. Busy. I tried again and got through the same recording as before. And just before, after listening to a two-minute explanation of the COVID situation, click. I was cut off again. And again. And again. I was undeterred. I kept redialing for 45 minutes. Do you know what was going through my mind about 30 minutes into my quest for St. Louis-style ribs? You don't want to know. Let's just say I was getting more frustrated by the minute. How stupid can these people be? Don't they have the sense to have a phone system that at least puts people on hold so that they can answer calls in the order that they're received? My anger was building up, more pressure in me than my Instapot. But then a miracle happened. Hello, can I help you? Someone inquired. And I immediately recognized the voice of Christy, a pleasant young woman who used to wait on me in person before life got crazy. When I heard her voice, my anger melted away in an instant. It wasn't Christy's fault. It wasn't the fault of anybody at this small country shop. Their job was butchering and selling quality meat, not information technology. Everybody I'd ever met there was a wonderful person and helpful. What I was really angry at was that I was cut off from face-to-face -face contact with these people who always served me so graciously. Now to lash out at Christy would have been stupid. The source of my anger and millions of people like me is with the multitudes of injuries and injustices wrought by a microscopic killer who has zero compassion. Fortunately, on that day, my anger subsided before I could visit it on innocent Christie. But I suspect she isn't always so lucky. And I admit that I'm not always so self-controlled. As I have said, we're all grieving losses, and we have a right and a need to be angry.
being aware of our anger and owning it gives us power over it to some extent. We still have it. The question is, for us, what are we going to do with our anger? How do we keep our anger from hurting others and hurting ourselves in the long run? We can take the advice of a biblical writer, James, who was addressing the people of the early Christian church. James says, You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Listen first, speak later, don't deny your anger, own it, but be slow to anger. When it is within your power, take a breath and let the fire of your anger burn itself out a little bit. When it takes you by surprise and you spout off, ask for forgiveness. Sometimes it may be helpful to say something like this, Forgive me, dear. I'm not angry at you. You were just a handy target. may sound a little canned, but it's true. When the shoe is on the other foot, when someone lashes out at you, try not to strike back. They're angry. It's likely they're not angry at you. You are just the convenient target. Don't try to talk them out of their anger either. They need it. Be there with them in it for a while. Have some compassion for them and work to understand them. And all of a sudden, neither of you will be alone. You still, still may be angry, but you're in it together. You may find some common ground with Martha and Mary in your relationship with Jesus these days. As you sit weeping over your losses, you may feel like running out in the road to meet him, shouting at the top of your voice, Jesus, where were you? If you would have been here, none of this would have happened. Go ahead, load your anger on him. Let him have it with both barrels. He's likely to sit down and cry with you. And in the end, like he did for Lazarus, he will give you new life. Amen. May the message of Easter and the memory of Christ's resurrection to new life continue to dwell and grow in you and give you hope. May God bless you and your families and keep you safe and healthy. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you with grace and mercy. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. See you next time.